Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to be welcoming Kevin Bethune. Kevin is the founder and chief creative officer of Dreams Design and Life, a think tank that delivers design and innovation services using a human-centric approach. Kevin's background spans engineering, business, and design in equal proportions over his 20-plus year career, allowing him to help brands deliver meaningful innovations to enhance people's lives. In this episode, we discuss Kevin's prior stints at Westinghouse and Nike, as well as his new book, Reimagining Design, Unlocking Strategic Innovation, which explains why good design, multidisciplinary team collaboration, and diversity are ultimately the foundation to innovation. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. For those listeners who might not know who you are, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure, Mallory. Thanks for having me. Um, So my name is Kevin Bethune. I'm the founder and chief creative of Dreams Design and Life. And uh, very much, I run a, a design and innovation practice that really tries to work on things that elevate sort of human connection, unlocking human potential, and um, very much leverage uh, the, the sort of the T-shaped practice of bringing strategic design and industrial design together. Uh, but I'm also an entrepreneur. I'm also heavily invested in a few startups and definitely navigating my first time as an author with, with book number one coming out, and then also working on book two presently. I read your first book, Reimagining Design, Unlocking Strategic Innovation. And what I loved is that it was part memoir, but then also part insights in the world of design. Would you mind sharing with listeners what was life like growing up for you? Because I think it's really interesting, your path to where you are today. I appreciate that. I can say uh, in the days of my youth, I had a creative itch. I, I drew for hobby. That was sort of my way of uh, unpacking what I saw in the world, helping me understand the world, um, tapping into imagination. Drawing was the medium, but I didn't know how to connect that to any notion of what design or innovation might be. That was like, those worlds were, it felt like thousands of miles away. And, and I was growing up for the better part of most of my childhood in the Don River Detroit area in the heart of the automotive industry. All the neighbors worked for the, all the automotive brands, as you can imagine. So, you know, engineering and business were more celebrated career paths that could assure you a, a pragmatic job on the other side of potentially college and <laughs> these kind of things. So um, I, I think there was always that creative itch, but it took a while for me to actually find like how I could use that uh, later in my career. For those listeners who haven't yet read the book, what I thought was really interesting is you described your journey as a Black professional. You were a nuclear engineer at Westinghouse and moved on to Nike, but I understand you wrote this book for those who might have felt othered or didn't always see themselves. You went to Notre Dame, which when I think about that, sorry, listeners, don't mean to offend. I think of it as a very white university. And you had your own experiences. Can you talk to us about what that was like for you? Yeah. Um, you know, no, Notre Dame, I think the transition to college was definitely a major adjustment. Um, and I'm not discrediting the, the public school systems I've come up through. I think I had a decent education pre-college, but Notre Dame was on a whole nother level. And to your point, yes, it was predominantly white. Um, 
you, you def I definitely felt like a different person as I navigated campus and classes. And when I got into the more uh, technical uh, avenues of engineering, it became even more, you know, predominantly so. I, I felt like very much on the margins of that experience. And then, you know, with the adjustment came some of the ch initial challenges that come with like learning that you, you know, you, your study habits aren't as good as what Notre Dame's expecting. And, and then have to have some initial advice, say engineering is not for you. And you're wondering like in the face of initial challenge, is that the immediate answer? And where, where is that conviction coming from and questioning that? Um, but thankfully being raised in a family where, you know, knowledge of self and be, uh, taking pride in who you are and like having the ambition despite any challenges, I think that was sort of an initial like provocation to say, I, I will figure it out because I'm interested in this lane. I'll do what's necessary to come up, bring up my skills. Um, so that, that feeling of other, I think, um, was sort of just another data point as I entered and navigated college. And then what drew you to nuclear engineering? It's funny. Um, you know, I had a, you know, internship here and there. Uh, and I, I even worked, went to an automotive brand for an, a summer internship. And I think for most industries at the time, um, there was sort of this conservative notion of, well, you know, you'll, you'll enter sort of a factory environment at the start of your engineering career. You'll spend like maybe eight to 10 years on the factory floor. Uh, helping out with all things operations until we let you do any hardcore engineering work. But there was one industry, the nuclear industry, that had a different message at the time. Uh, that industry hadn't hired young talent for the 10 to 15 years prior to me coming out of school. So they were very bullish around like, we have a knowledge crisis. Like the people that design these nuclear plants are on the verge of retirement. We're going to lose all this knowledge. So let's like swing the door wide open and allow new talent to come in and get like mentorship immediately and get on really solid engineering projects so that they can develop and take over uh, as the next generation. So it, it was the wide open door that I had to walk through just to ensure that I could get credible experiences fast and early. So what I've never openly said on the podcast, but friends and family know, it's my dream to work for Nike. If I'm on my deathbed and I don't have that on my resume, that's going to be something that I regret because you and I very similarly feel like Nike has everything and you move there. It has creativity, technology, strategy. And when you think I'm a marketer, when I think of marketing, I think of those campaigns that just make you feel. And Nike does that perfectly. You went to Nike after getting your MBA. You're on the business side. But like you mentioned, sketching was always something you did on the side. And what I really admired about your story is that you would get there early. You would work with one of your mentors from 6 a.m. till the start of the workday. You would do your regular job. Then at the end of the workday, you would meet back up and continue the process. How did you get that opportunity to start to design shoes? And we'll get to what shoes you were working on because it's really like it's a moment in history no 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 I, pre I appreciate that um honestly i i didn't know that that opportunity would present itself it was sort of the early calculated bets around like okay outside of my business planning job who could i meet because i'm a product person at heart for my engineering days and my creative curiosity and so coffee chats led to meeting more people and people kicking me to more people to meet and uh, there were there were a few uh, folks that became mentors of ultimately 
that said, you know what, um, there's, there's, we, we could use some extra support. Can you like volunteer your time as a side hustle? And we could understand you a bit better. You could understand and learn about what we're doing and see if there's a mutual synergy. So there are a few of those moments that gave me a little bit more courage to experiment more. And then I met um, at the time, Dwayne Edwards, who was the forward design director for the Jordan brand. He had too many briefs, not enough designers. And he's like, oh, I, you know, I, I will give you a shot. I, I will give you one of these briefs. I'll mentor you through it. You have to definitely step up and like take my counsel. And if you get this done, that's gonna open up more doors for you, but I'll give you one shot. And sure enough, um, under his mentorship, we executed two shoes that made it in the marketplace. They did really well for the seasons that they launched. And it was wild to see people walking around the streets in different cities and I would see my shoes on these folks. I mean, it was just amazing, uh, surreal experience. In preparing for this interview, I listened to some other shows you were on and you talked about how if you wanted to be considered a designer at Nike, it was going to take you years because of what they deemed as a designer, shoe designer. So you decided to actually pivot a little and you got your master's degree at Art Center Industrial Design Program in 2012. What was that experience like? I had never heard of that school until I read your book. And then when I dove in during research, it seemed like it was a fascinating program to go through. Yeah, um, yeah, there, there was definitely a fork in the road. Um, you know, I could have clawed and scratched another 10, 15 years. And I had to be honest with myself, I didn't have formal studio training, design training, like some of my creative peers did. And um, it just so happened though that uh, there's a lot of Art Center College of Design alums in the Nike sort of ecosystem. And there were a few honest souls that basically showed me like the bar of success is really high. And, you know, here's a couple of like Art Center portfolios that you should look at, look through and see the, the caliber of what you're, you're, you're hopefully are aiming to hit. And then meanwhile, I'm looking at um, how the world's changing outside of Nike, beyond the berm of Nike campus and seeing like design celebrated on the cover of business magazines, business folks being celebrated in design circles. And I saw a little bit of myself in that growing convergence. And, and it was a choice of whether I spend 10 to 15 years getting the pedigree to be a footwear designer, full, full blown, or really match with the, what's happening in the world by, by investing in two more years of graduate education to position myself and with confidence and credibility that I could play at the intersections of these disciplines. So it was more of a, a calculated, huge gamble in my career. And I understand that industrial design chair, Andy Ogden, was a very big mentor in your life. Um, can you talk about how he helped with your transformation as a designer? No, absolutely. And he still very much is a mentor to this day. Um, I think Andy, uh, who had navigated like premier uh, design studio experiences at like Honda, um, as well as Disney Imagineering and, and just part of a trusted circle of like the, the most esteemed creatives imaginable. He knew what it was like to take design into business arenas. He had the, you know, he earned an MBA himself. So he had experienced some of these transitions and he wanted um, the, the nature of the graduate industrial design program to shift to match what was happening in the market. So he, he placed a heavy emphasis on value creation, design for value creation, design for problem solving at the strategy table, as well as appreciating the craft of being able to say, if we have a, a device opportunity, let's say, to go deep on the industrial design, but match that with the strategic design aspects 
too, in terms of how we collaborate. And um, I think the timing of when I applied to Art Center and, and Andy's like shift of the program to really match what the market needed, it was just a beautiful serendipity that I could time it where I could attend that program under Andy's leadership. You hit on something that is interesting to me is that when you think of who's at the table at the beginning, design normally doesn't have a seat at it. Why is that? Because as someone who's in marketing, half the time I feel we're bringing design in too late where they're not getting a say and the trains left the station, but we're missing the point because we haven't talked to them first. Mm -hmm. You're, You're absolutely right. Unfortunately, unfortunately, and historically, um, when it comes to like the value chain, the sequence of events that add value to something, some product that we're trying to commercialize, unfortunately, there's a perception that design adds the last one to 5% of value at the very end of the process. It, and unfortunately, there's the old adage of putting lipstick on a pig, you know, <laughs> that, that everyone else did the big thinking and design is just going to make it look pretty. But I think with the converging forces of the world, where customer attitudes are, how we need to have an understanding of ecosystem effects, the value that design or creative problem solving can add from the very start and at parity in collaboration with those other disciplines. I, I just think, um, you know, the, I think the business disciplines have enjoyed the dominant share of influence through history. And then arguably recently, you could argue technologists have entered that realm of influence, thanks to Silicon Valley, last couple of decades, power of software, they're at the table, but design is the most recent. So I think we still have a miles to go in terms of getting everyone's understanding around what design can do to a level of maturity. Did you feel after you were at the Art Center, I know you went to the BCG Digital Ventures team, you created that inside of Boston Consulting Group. Is that where you started to see that you were able to kind of champion more design being brought in earlier because the work you did there was leaps and bounds. You're moving design very quickly. And obviously Boston Consulting Group is such a big powerhouse and name to be able to almost start a startup within this old established, but very powerful organization was groundbreaking to some extent. I appreciate that. Uh, Even before BCG um, invested in us, we, we didn't necessarily have a home. We, we kind of, we met each other, the small group of business partners, multidisciplinary stewards. We met each other to basically co-found this entity that would spark multidisciplinary innovation and just incubate the businesses outright versus handing it off to some other like firm or agency. Um, and so we kind of had our fits and starts and restarts under a couple of different parent companies actually. And then BCG though, when they came in and they, they saw what we were doing, they really invested in us and to, to allow us to like bring design and the capabilities and really show what was possible. I really applaud BCG for trusting us to afford us that runway. But in many, in many ways, our stakeholders didn't know what to ask of us when it came to design. So it was up to us to show with our newfound capabilities um, as we were growing our creative function, like constantly showing evidence of what was possible and doing more than what was initially asked from the business stakeholders. What just popped in my mind was thinking about sometimes you're at the table, you're talking, but a company doesn't know what to ask. 
or how to have that conversation. And you as like the designer and thinking about it strategically, how do you help guide those conversations? Because your mind probably is moving a lot quicker and seeing all the possibilities, but sometimes they don't even know what to ask or what questions they should be thinking about. Yeah. And honestly, I, I, I have to approach every encounter with potential organizations, as you mentioned, with humility in myself, because I, I've been in their shoes as, you know, as a, a person in-house in a large corporation. There's so many moving parts. There's so much pressure for short-term delivery. Like their, their minds are just occupied, I, I would say, by so much. And so I have to empathize with that. And so I view my job as like, how can I be an, uh, a helpful instigator to help them open their aperture? And where maybe they don't have the calories to spend on the, on the type of work that I'm doing, I, I, can, I can at least lead by example and show them through contribution, rolling up my sleeves of what, what is possible and then start to involve them into the problem solving, into the cooking. And I think you know, nine times out of 10, you know, every, every uh, initial engagement where we start to show evidence they're bought in and they want it to have that problem solving continue. So I've had a few guests on recently who they all were part of these great organizations and they kind of decided one day, you know what, it's time for to work for myself. And in 2018, you created Dreams, Design and Life. How did you decide to take that next step or it's not even a step, it's a jump because you're leaving that security of a paycheck, having consistent clients into this unknown, but with that unknown comes tons of possibility. Yeah, I think it was a continuing thread actually from the Nike experience and the idea of curiosity, breeding, uh, ways to put myself out there and attracting the right type of uh, interested parties that wanted to collaborate perhaps with me more so than maybe the entity that I worked for. And Again, I'm super grateful for what BCG afforded as a runway. At the same time, I was feeling like I was feeling spread thin across so many industries, so many topics, a lot of them heavily skewed toward digitization versus perhaps maybe the more human-centric topics I was more passionate about. And because my career had been a heavy mixture of physical creation with, with some digital, I wanted to work on uh, affordances where physical, digital, and services would come together. And not every BCG client perhaps was interested in that arena. And meanwhile, I'm having friends reach out asking for my specific help because they might've seen a talk I gave or saw some personal like sketches or whatever. And they thought I could help them on their industrial design of this or industrial design of that. And I said, you know, there's enough pokes and prods that, you know, I could, I could, create, a, I could create a personal platform here versus continuing just to navigate on a big platform of BCG. Your company, you're split into thirds. There's a third strategy, third creative, and third technology. And when you mix it all together, that's really where you have the right mix to move forward, whether it's really thinking empathetically or industrial. Um, and you are very involved with your clients. How does that collaboration start to grow? Is it organic? Do you pick and choose who you guys take on? Or do you... You know, if someone reaches out to you, are you going to take them on? Um, I mean, thankfully, you know, being a small entity compared to where I came from with BCG, um, we, we definitely feel privileged to be able to be very selective of who we partner with. And I, and I purposely call my clients client partners because 
I, I think there, I, I can tell pretty quickly whether this is the right potential client partner or not based on how that initial collaboration goes. And what I, what I do give our team credit for is that we can quickly build trust in terms of how we behave in those initial problem solving encounters. And then we can also go deep and show craft in terms of like what we can express as outcomes for them. Um, and, you know, I think what, what's been cool is that our, our business output has, has um, shifted beyond like selling design sprints where most of the client partners that we have, we've been invested with them for a couple of years at least. We're just an ongoing cadence of opportunities to problem solve. And then there's also opportunities to actually go deep on specific design affordances. And I, I couldn't be more proud of, of that sort of legacy and being a, a fluid platform that can really help our client partner, partners be more successful. You just hit on a word, the sprint. And for listeners who don't know, like usually a sprint or like a scrum is you have a problem, you take maybe a week, two weeks. It's very quick moving. You're trying to figure out the problem and move on to the next thing. But what I've experienced or I've seen is people do that, but you're not looking long-term. I always kind of discuss and say, you're putting a Band-Aid on the patient instead of saying, well, where's the bleeding coming from? We got to take our time to open them up to find it versus just putting a Band-Aid over the hole. And I think that companies love these buzzwords of, oh, it's a sprint or we're being innovative or Silicon Valley's of we're breaking shit and then we're going to put it back together and you move so quickly, you're not looking long-term. And that's always been my pain point. And I'm that person at the table that goes, wait a second, stop. Are we thinking about what comes next? Mm-hmm. How have you seen that transform in your career? Because I feel like sprints now are the hot buzzword versus how are you looking at things more strategically long-term? Yeah, I think I love your analogy. And I think context matters. Sometimes you might need a band-aid where, you know, the incremental innovation, incremental fix is necessary to keep the business platform running. We, we get it. And, you know, business platforms should remain agile and, and fluid in that respect. But there's, a, there's still a ton of opportunities. Like if we, if we shift ourselves left of the typical like process that we go through to, to incubate or commercialize anything, if we move left, there's this arena called the fuzzy front end where there's some gnarly ambiguity. There are some systematic challenges that we need to unpack. Um, perhaps that business that we've been nurturing, it will have to mature. It, it will have to be replaced one day. And so what are we working on in terms of innovation that's going to spark new growth opportunities or, or ways to like renew the platform? And we need that front end capability and capacity uh, to work for us to do that. And the best founders, honestly, that I've had the liberty of uh, collaborating with and meeting, those ideal founders spend like 50% of their brain on that long-term, to your point, and 50% on the short-term needs of keeping the business afloat. But that long-term is just as critical too. And then during this time, not only are you launching a new company and I know you have family and balancing everything. You decide to write a book. How did that come about? Because what I love about your book is, like I said earlier, it is a little memoir. You're get you're painting the picture of what your life's been like and how you've navigated your career. Um, did you always want to write a book? Um, I, I never viewed myself as a writer. Never 
foresaw being an author. But when I navigated through BCG, there was a, a thread of uh, a mentor said this word to me one day when I was there, um, this word of eminence, that BCG is big on eminence, not like for the sake of, oh, if I give a talk or I write an article, I'm, I'm ego stroking, you know, the fact that I did that. No, but I think for anyone's career, there's value in sharing with your industry or sharing with your peers, like what you learned. And so it, it's helpful to, for your career to like unpack and share from your brain, like what you learned. And then in those interactions, you learn from someone else and you become stronger in your journey. So that eminence thread was like big in BCG culture. And I, that, that seed was sort of planted uh, and I carried it forward. And so when, um, when I reflected on the BCG experience of building design capabilities in that arena and then with Dreams Design and Life, the idea of a book had been percolating and I even like teased proposals with publishers. And I probably wasn't understanding how to talk to publishers correctly because it was my first time even entertaining that. But around the start of the pandemic, actually, um, moments of clarity emerged where my proposal got a lot more specific and targeted. But even then, I would say the personal narrative foundation didn't material, materialize yet. It was a surprise because as we were all like, you know, dealing with isolation, we were all watching the news and seeing these very jarring, compounding realities emerge. And we were sort of forced to like look within ourselves, I think more than we all expected. And in the writing process, I think it kind of all spilled out unexpectedly. It's funny, this podcast kind of came out of that time. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm not the strongest writer, um, but I was watching what was going on in our society and how mean people were to one another. And I was thinking, where is that sense of kindness or empathy or understanding? And I'll be the first one to raise my hand and say, I don't know, but I want you to tell me so I can learn. And then mm -hmm. I'm going to go tell five other people what I learned and mm -hmm. hopefully continue. So having guests on, talking to them about their career journey or sensitive topics around race or religion or culture, because I don't know everything, but I know by talking to people like you or other guests, I'm learning and growing and we're building that foundation, I hope, to create a little bit more understanding and empathy in society. Love it. What's one thing you would want to share with designers that are up and coming? What life lesson? For, for, for designers, I think, I think there is, I think there is an opportunity for design to remember that they bring a healthy set of capabilities that exemplify what I call in the book, breadth and depth. So in a hyper-converging world, designers are gonna be in the room with other disciplines that are not from design more and more often. And so they, every designer should think about at least when they think about their development, like how can you build actual capabilities that foster breadth, breadth, breadth of communication, collaboration, aligning everyone strategically. And there's design capabilities that can be helpful to get disparate disciplines together more often. And, find their sort of creative chemistry. Design can be a, a, a nurturer of that chemistry that's so necessary nowadays and into the future. And then still, we still want you as the designer to leverage your depth of craft, whether you're an expert design investigator or researcher, whether you're the best industrial designer or digital UX UI person, 
we still need that craft because we need the trust that you can hang your hat on something to deliver an outcome. Uh, so that, that breadth and depth orchestration of career, I think is essential for the future of design. And then where do you want design dream and life to go? Where do you want, do you want to continue growing? I don't even know how big the firm is, but do you want to double in size? Do you want to continue taking on different clients or break into different industries that maybe fascinate you and you haven't had the chance to really um, get your hands involved in? No, it's it's interesting season right now because uh, surprisingly the book, the book is doing well. And I think I, I'm expecting already and seeing already an attraction of like-minded souls out there that want to engage and just in conversations that could lead to business opportunities. But I just hope long-term um, dreams design in life that our, that our client mix becomes even richer with the world's most incredible brands that have like-minded convictions and values. I want to just collaborate with great people, my team to collaborate with great people and feel good about the work and not feel like we're just chasing our tails or throwing mud on the wall for the sake of someone's digital agenda or, you know, we, we, we stay away from megalomaniacs. We stay away from people that, you know, don't care about doing harm to society that we stay away from clients that don't allow their own employees to bring their whole selves to work, you know? So that these are, these are things that we're bullish on. And then also there's an incubation appetite. I think I, I'm a big believer in this brand in terms of, I also want it to incubate its own products to show like what good design can be by exemplifying like our own sort of volition around needs that we see in the marketplace. I feel like a design dream in life conference coming about in the next year or so where people can come and panels, let's discuss, you know, <laughs> I feel like something like that, pulling those minds together and let's really share where you think it's going to go or problems or ideas. Um, what do you think the next book is going to be focused on? Do you have a clear idea or have you started even writing it? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm basically uh, two thirds through the rough ball of clay of just rough writing where it's, it's all terrible. <laughs> I'll write I, it 10 times. I, I doubt that. I doubt that, but okay. <laughs> but I, I, I can't say what the title is yet, but um, I, I do want to almost double click into like, how does empowered design actually like look and feel like? Like if, if you believe in reimagining design and design at parity and the problem solving to, to all your earlier points around bringing design early up front, well, what, what does then empowered design look like um, in terms of like getting people's perceptions away from the formulaic super basic perceptions that unfortunately a lot of the design thinking conversations are fostering um, because a lot of that, a lot of those simple frameworks, and I got, I know the intention is not hopefully coming from a good place with those frameworks, but a lot of those uh, ideals fall down in the face of complexity, real business complexity. And I view the design approach as not just like this formulaic methodology that rinses and repeats, it's almost like a set of guideposts that you kind of like ping pong around based on what you have as evidence, what your intuition tells you and how you're co-creating ideally with your stakeholders, not treating them as lab rats that you're actually engaging people at a human level. 
So I want to show what that intuitive navigation looks like in terms of investigating and then how do we actually ideate and create solutions in an intuitive way and not be afraid to break the methodologies when we see a new doorway that we need to enter and like go explore. I want to show that intuitive nature that can inform what is hopefully more humane, intuitive and responsible products and services. So that's the sort of the thesis around the second book. Well, I am looking forward to reading it because as someone who's in marketing, I think design should have a bigger role, should be one of the first people at the table and also not the first group to be laid off. You're looking at a lot of tech companies right now that are just slashing design and marketing. I was working at a tech company and I was let go along with like 40% of the company and it was really all design and marketing. And I was shocked when I'm seeing all these people on my LinkedIn feed in the same boat. And I'm thinking you're, you're letting go of the talent that's bringing your product to the marketplace that is listening to what consumers want. Why is it that we're seeing the tech bubble kind of burst a little and they're just letting go of design first? Uh, Unfortunately, I think they're, they're not immune to those unfortunate precedents and mindsets around like where they see the value and tech companies are not immune to uh, looking at the creative functions, marketing, design, et cetera, as um, not, not essential, even though in a, in the best ventures that you unpack, it's absolutely essential. And, and, you know, if, if, if the recession's creating pressure on a bubble that maybe wasn't as viable even to begin with, you know, then, then that, that's telling as well. And the best organizations, I, ideally that talent that was affected, unfortunately, ideally that talent can find homes where the, the value is appreciated and they have an opportunity to flex their wings, show their capabilities and demonstrate the value that the market needs. No, absolutely. And I also think it's interesting, a lot of these tech startups, and I know you're in the startup world and you invest and work with them. I feel like a lot of startups always think they're going to be the next unicorn. So they spend their funding like they're going to be a unicorn and it ends up biting them later on. What got you interested in the startup world? Honestly, I, I think most of my career previous to Art Center was like the large organization dynamics. And maybe that personal curiosity to want to connect the dots even though it was beyond my immediate like specialized role, I got tired of being maybe told no, that I couldn't connect those dots because I was stepping on someone's turf or it wasn't my charter because of this person. And I think that naturally leads you to entrepreneurship. I'm smiling right now because I have been told the same thing before <laughs> where it's like, you're stepping on people's toes. No, you know, calm down or the organization's a big ship. It can't move that quickly. But I would see very clearly how to connect dots, how to grow the business, what was needed. And I was very vocal about it and, you know, being told no. So when you were just saying that, I was like, you're speaking my love language. Yes. Like I've been through that as well. I'm sure. Yep. (laughs) So before we get into the last, the final three questions, where do you want design to go overall as a industry? what would you want designers to really start to think about in the next five, 10 years? Um, 
ideally, ideally we sort of, ideally we don't fear breaking away from the conventions that have sort of anchored design presently. Right now, I think a lot of design is anchored heavily in like software driven constructs. And, but we have to remember that human beings are intuitive, idiosyncratic creatures. And ideally design is working less on just ushering people through a market funnel to get people to click to buy. And I know I'm being sort of extreme in my language, but this idea of marketers marketing, consumers consuming, and not disrespecting marketing when I say that, it's just like the engine of commerce is so counterintuitive to what actual human beings need. And instead, can we design ways that we actually show up for people with the right product services systems, um, show up for people meaningfully in a way that will help them unpack their potential, unlock their facility to connect with other human beings, doing what's right for humans and, and also treating the planet as a stakeholder thoughtfully as well. And not just like eliciting harm and allowing that engine of, of consumption to just break us apart. So that's, so I think designers need to be, you know, at the table, of course, they need to be more systematic. They need to be more, uh, uh, the advocates that bring the problem solving into bigger arenas that focus on like larger ecology, not just the business concern, because ultimately that does play into the value criteria of our business stakeholders because they care about those things. So design could be helpful to like open the aperture to make room for the problem solving that's necessary to create better futures. That's a perfect way to end this conversation. And I look forward to reading your next book and hopefully having you back on when it comes out, we can talk about it. Kevin, thank you so much. This has been so lovely. The first question that I end every episode with is if you had a quote or a mantra that you live by, what would that be? Well, it won't be a surprise from this conversation that we've had, but um, for me, curiosity should be a defining thread for your journey, whether it's personally or professionally, it can change your life if you allow yourself to lean in and experiment and it'll definitely lead you to the convictions that matter to you. Well said. The second question is, if you could relive any one day, which day would you choose? <laughs> I would probably relive the day my son was born because that day was just insane and it flew by so fast. And I would have loved to like relive it and slow it down to appreciate all the micro moments. That's funny. I've had a few guests say the exact thing that just went so quickly and they wish that they could go back and relive those small moments knowing everything would be okay and to lean into the joy more than panic or fear kind of confusion of that moment. Um, the final question is if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, which song would you choose? I would choose Black Kennedy from August Green. And August Green is a super group comprised of uh, Common, Robert Glasper, Kareem Riggins. And if plays on the notion of the Kennedys, you know, the prestige, you see the Kennedys on the cover of Architectural Digest and all the stuff. Um, but, but playing on that notion of, of Black excellence and like living that and exuding that life of excellence, high standards, intelligence, helping each other, community, like that, that song really resonates every time I play it. Well, I'm excited to add that to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist on Spotify. I've never heard of the song, so I'm excited to listen to it. Kevin, thank you so much. Listeners, make sure you check out Kevin's book, Reimagining Design, Unlocking Strategic Innovation. We'll post about it as well, and it's in this 
A link to purchase it is in this episode's show notes. Kevin, I feel like I could talk to you so much more about just design, marketing, your career. It's been a fascinating journey and I'm excited to see and continue to watch where it goes. So thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. I don't know. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation and for investing so much in the book. I loved your thoughtful questioning. So thank you. 